0: Sometimes, sometimes, because we know that can happen, words can lose meaning over time or gain meaning over time from culture to culture, people to people, it's important for us to go back and redefine the word. And When I say redefine, like we said last week, we're not talking about go back and give it a whole new meaning or, or add to the definition, change the definition, but redefine. Uh, seriously, can you take that off? Because that's really distracting on these two screens down here. Thank you. Uh, sometimes... Well, when I say redefine, what I mean is go back and really look at the roots of the word. and So that's exactly what we're doing these next couple weeks. We did last week as we looked at this word worship, worship redefined or redefined worship, whatever we're calling this series. Um, and, so, and so I want to do that tonight. And what we saw last week is worship goes deeper than just a reflection of, of knowing God, whether that's through just mental knowledge or experiential knowledge. Worship goes deeper than that. Worship really is a, is a natural response to having love, feelings, and affections for God. And what we saw last week in that story of Nehemiah 8, that, that, uh, that the Israelites worshiped God because God had captured their hearts. And so the question that we kind of landed on last week was, has God captured our hearts? And tonight we're going to dig further into this uh, idea of, of worship and trying to understand the concept of worship, and to do that we're going to go to Mark chapter 7. Um, so if you would, turn to Mark chapter 7, and before we, we jump into Mark 7, one, I want to pray, and two, I'm going to give you some context of what's happening here. But let me pray for us as you turn to, as you turn to Mark 7. Lord, I... I pray over this evening. I pray that uh, you would remove distractions, Father, from from our minds, from my mind, um, God, from our hearts. And um, tonight, I pray that you give us ears to hear and uh, just spiritual eyes to see what your word is telling us, Father. I pray that um, I pray that your spirit would affirm the things that are said from up here, and I pray that your spirit would even shape uh, how they're said from up here as we go through this tonight. Lord, thank you for your word, and I just pray that it would powerfully move in my heart tonight and in. All of our hearts tonight, and uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray, uh, Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter seven is where we're going to start. But some context here: if you really go back to Mark chapter six, and you need to see the context before we jump into Mark seven, because it's really going to, I think, add to what's said, which is kind of funny and crazy all at once. Um, and it's also it's also really going to, I think, affect our understanding of worship. So Mark six. Back in verse 30, up to this point, Jesus and the 12 disciples, they've been traveling around for a while. They've been doing all this ministry type stuff. They've been ministering to all sorts of people, people who were, who were poor, who were sick, who were um, total outcasts, who had some disgusting diseases, all the way up to people who were rich, wealthy, powerful, prestigious, smart, learned, uh, dumb, everybody. They've been ministering really in the trenches with, this, with these people. I mean, hard labor for a long, uh, for a long time. And as, as the disciples had been traveling around doing all this, they, they really hadn't had time for themselves to sit down, to rest, to relax, uh, to eat. And so they'd really been ministering to the point of neglecting their own needs. And so in verse 31, you see that, uh, verse 30, yeah, verse 31, you see uh, the disciples, Jesus says to the disciples, Y'all come with me and we're going to get on this boat and we're going to go to a place that's secluded away from distractions away from people, and we're going to have some time to just sit down, probably around a campfire, kick our feet up, relax, eat, and and snooze a little bit. And so they get in this boat, they head across uh, the lake, and by the time they get to the other side of the lake, or the Sea of Galilee in this case, uh, these people, and when I say people, I don't mean just a few people, I mean thousands of people had run ahead of them and actually beat them there. And so when they get to the shore, there's thousands of people just waiting on them. And instead of Jesus pushing all the people away, he actually, he actually draws them in and he begins to teach them. And eventually, eventually, he, he, uh, he not only just teaches them, but generously feeds all these people. And when I say feeds all these people, we're talking about 5,000 plus people in chapter 6. And, and so this evening and this afternoon that was supposed to be relaxing for them uh, and, and a time for them to kick back, rest, and, and feed themselves turns into an evening where the 13 of them, Jesus and the 12, uh, serve, wait on, and clean up after thousands of people. And so after, after they fed all these people, when the evening was over, Jesus then uh, puts the 12 back in this boat and says, hey, y'all go and meet me in Bethsaida, which was a town kind of nearby across the, across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was going to go off, and he was going to pray by himself. And so he lets the disciples go in this boat, and, and pretty much as soon as they get out on the water, a storm brews up and begins to push this boat away from where they are trying to go to Bethsaida and they end up going out towards the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Before we just kind of read over this, and, and it says that in the text that they were in the middle of the lake, it says Jesus looks out there and sees them in the middle of the lake uh, straining uh, at the oars. Before we just pass over the fact they were in the middle of the lake, we got to understand that in their cultural context. There was this urban legend going around at this point that said if a boat went out into the middle of the lake, there was some force or I don't know what they thought it was, something that that they thought that the boat would just disappear, never to be seen again. And so when it says, I think, it's like, uh, I think it's like verse 47 or so, or I don't know, around there, That it says, Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars. They weren't just out there physically straining at the oars. The disciples were out there straining at the oars, terrified for the life, because they're out in the middle of the lake, and they, they know this urban legend is, has been passed around, and they're thinking they're about to be the next victim of the middle of this lake, or whatever that looked like. But to add to the terror and the trauma that they're already going through at this point, they then look out and see uh, what appears to be a ghost that is now walking out on the water towards their boat. Jesus had decided to go out there and check on his boys, and so he does it in the most weird way by walking on water. So here they are. Imagine the disciples, okay? They're out there straying physically, trying to get out of the middle of the lake. They don't want to be a victim. And, and they look up, and they see this ghost coming at them. They had them thinking, this is it, man. Like, this is the urban legend. There's this crazy creek dude that comes out, and he kills everybody when they come to the middle of his lake or I don't, I don't know really what they thought, but I'm sure they were they were totally freaking out. So this is this is what leads, and this is what leads up to Mark chapter 7, where we pick up the disciples and Jesus. They've been traveling around, they have they've expended every last ounce of energy that they have serving and ministering to other people. Uh, and then the disciples specifically have come off of a sleepless night of straining uh, out in the water, and not just sleepless, but traumatizing night because they thought they were going to be a victim of this urban legend. And then they, they actually, it says, that you know, at the beginning they set out to Bethsaida. But if you also notice in the text in chapter 6, they ended up in another place called Gennesaret or Gennesaret, however, however you say it, which is about five or six miles away from Bethsaida. So they're in the wrong place. So finally they get to this place, Gennesaret, they, they pull off, and they have a chance to, to kick their feet up, sit down probably around a fire, and eat some food. And it's kind of that, that feeling you get after a long day, come back, turn on the TV, sit down on the couch, and you take that really relaxing breath of air, and it's like, oh, finally, I get, to just, I get to just kind of chill. Well, that's when we pick up in Mark chapter 7, verse 1, and listen to what happens. It says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. I like how Mark kind of goes into description here, making sure we understand what, looks, what unclean hands look like or what they're like. So, verse 3 says, the Pharisees and all the, the Jews uh, do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders when they came or when they when they come from the marketplace they don't eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups pitchers and and kettles and so on verse 5 so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands so you've got to understand a couple things about the Pharisees and the, and, the, uh, and the scribes at this point. The Pharisees, well, actually start with the scribes. The scribes, they were like the experts in the law. They were the law scholars. They were the teachers. They knew it front, back, everything about it, word for word, probably had it memorized. The Pharisees were really the same way. They weren't really the teachers, but they were the really pious guys who prided themselves in keeping the law. And I don't mean keeping it casually. I mean keeping it down to every last dotted I and cross I mean, these were like the religious police officers of their day. So, here you have the disciples and Jesus, totally exhausted from ministry, totally exhausted from a sleepless night and being hungry because they've neglected their own needs as they've uh, worried more about the needs of others. Then on the other hand, you have these Pharisees and these scribes that show up, which it says they came from Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is about 100 miles away from Gennesaret. So, these Pharisees and these scribes, they've traveled a little over 100 miles, to come find Jesus. And they've, as they've traveled, I would assume, since these are powerful, prestige, prestigious, probably wealthy people in the community, they didn't travel in, um, in, in a lower-class way. They, they traveled kind of high-class. They traveled pleasantly, or what would be known as pleasantly for their day. Um, they, they traveled in comfort. And I would also assume that as they traveled, they co- totally and completely ignored the people that they passed along the road. They didn't stop. They didn't minister uh, to other people who may have had needs around them. So uh, not only that, they, they go this 100 miles really with the intention of their mind of hunting down Jesus. And the whole reason they were hunting down Jesus is because as they were there swimming in their sea of, of prideful piety, they're searching for anything to accuse Jesus in the, in the 12 of. And so when they show up here in chapter seven, verse one, Jesus and the disciples finally sitting down, taking that fresh breath of air, kicking their feet back, relaxing, starting to shoot the breeze and eat for the first time in a while, they show up and they see what looks like a small window of opportunity to finally accuse Jesus and the disciples of, of doing something wrong. This is their chance to get them. And what they saw was, is that as Jesus and the disciples start to eat, they saw that Jesus and the 12 had failed to wash their hands before eating. They began to eat uh, without clean hands, which for them culturally was a big no-no. I talked last week how, how I went to uh, Senegal and West Africa, and when we went there, uh, one of the things culturally they told us on the front end that was a really big deal was you have, your hands each have specific assignments. Your right hand is your shaking hand. Your left hand is your bathroom hand, all right? And uh, I won't go into detail, but they don't have toilet paper over there, so that's what your left hand was for. It was pretty disgusting. And so, I mean, if you shook somebody's hand, you shook their hand with, their, with, with your right hand. If you went up with your left hand, it was a total diss in their face, and they would, I mean, they would take that I'm totally wrong, especially coming from a foreigner. So... Shake people's hand with your right hand, you do your bathroom stuff with your left hand. Well, you would also eat together from a community bowl. Now, you would only use your right hand, so if you were a left-hander, you had to really focus hard on not using your left hand because that was totally rude to stick your bathroom hand in the communal bowl. But you would, uh, you would eat out of communal bowl with your right hand, but before you would actually start to eat, they would pass around this rusted little bucket um, of water, no soap, and you would wash both of your hands in that bucket of water before eating. It was kind of this ceremonial washing, probably pretty similar to what they were doing in ancient Israel. So you'd wash both your hands, your clean hand and your not clean at all hand, in this same bucket of water, pass to the next person, they'd wash it, pass it to the next person and they'd wash it. So I mean you'd hope you were the first person to wash. If you weren't, well you were washing it with some people are putting some hand sanitizer on right now, as so I'm talking about this. Um, so yeah, I mean it was pretty disgusting. It was their version of being sanitary and so so the Pharisees and the scribes, they saw a window of opportunity when Jesus and the disciples, they failed to do this before they ate. And not so much because they could call them out on being unsanitary, though that they definitely were being unsanitary by not washing their hands. The issue wasn't at all really a matter of, of being sanitary. The issue that the Pharisees and the, and the scribes were calling them out on was they weren't adhering to religious ritual and religious ceremony. So the Pharisees, verse 5, and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now Jesus and the 12 disciples have just basically been pulled over by the religious police of their day. Instead of being asked, like, do you know how fast you're going back there? Instead they're asked, "Uh, why didn't you do what every God-fearing Israelite does before they eat? Why are you irreverently eating your food with unclean hands? Now, understanding the context here of chapter 6 leading into chapter 7, like I, it's hard for me to understand why verse 6 doesn't say Jesus got up at this point, uh, looked at the Pharisees and the scribes, zapped them dead, sat back down, propped his feet back up, and continued eating. Uh, but it doesn't say that. I was, I, was at, um, I was at Zara's the other day having coffee, and there was a group sitting kind of next to me, and I was, awkwardly eavesdropping, I guess, but they were talking about some books that they were reading, and one of the guys starts talking about this book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a book by a guy named A.W. Tozer, which he's a great author. In fact, I'll quote him here in a little bit, but as he was talking about it, word for word, I really, as soon as he said it, I'd get on my computer and start typing it up what he would say, because <laughs> it's hilarious. He says, every time I read it, talking about the book, every time I read it, God throws a grenade in my mind and blows up my face. Um <laughs> So, I mean, you'd almost expect that in verse 6, something like this would happen after they finally had a chance to relax and then these Pharisees and the scribes show up and get mad because they didn't wash their hands. You, but it doesn't happen. There's no like fatal zappings or mind bombs or anything like that. Um, but, but Jesus does hit them right square in the nose with what he says next. Look at verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written... These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus leans over, and as he, as he leans over, he looks at these guys in the face, and he says to them, you guys are just hypocrites. And before we move on to the next part, just passing over this word hypocrite, because I know we hear this word a lot. Culturally, it, it's, it's tossed around. Like We need to understand how they understood the word hypocrite in, in their day. A hypocrite in their day, which I think is kind of funny and, and really has some depth to it, but more humor, I think, in the way Jesus uses it. But a hypocrite in their day is, is, is a man, you would hear it described a lot like as you're kind of researching this, a man with, um, uh, with like a second face. That's what they say. But basically, a, a hypocrite was an actor. Uh, it was somebody who would wear a mask or who would wear a costume. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, anybody really who wears a mask or a costume is a hypocrite. So like Hollywood, is the most hypocritical town in the United States of America, all those actors that live there. Halloween is like the most hypocritical day of the year for us in the United States because of all the costumes. Anybody who wears a mask or a costume or plays a part other than their own normal self is a hypocrite. Cross-dressers, they are hypocrites. And so when Jesus calls these guys hypocrites, essentially what he's saying to them is you guys are just a bunch of actors. You guys are just a bunch of cross-dressers. He says, look, take off your Snoopy outfit, sit down, and let's have like an open and honest conversation uh, over here. And so then, then he quotes Isaiah 29. And he does this intentionally. He knows, he knows that by quoting Isaiah 29, he's going to really connect with these Pharisees and these scribes. Because he knows that these Pharisees and these scribes, I mean, that's what they do. They study uh, the law and the prophets, capital L and capital P. And so he knows that they know Isaiah. They probably have it memorized word for word. And they know the context in which What he says here in verse 6 and 7 is being said back in Isaiah 29. This is a a 700-year-old prophecy that he quotes. And he says this. He says, as it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He explains exactly what a hypocrite is. And and in this case, the costume being worn is the costume of a God-fearing Israelite, a worshiper of the king of kings. And Jesus says to them, you honor God with your lips. You wear the costume. This isn't the only time that we really see Christ go off on these Pharisees and these scribes. If, if you were to flip back to Matthew 23, um, Jesus actually goes into more detail on how outwardly they presented themselves as God-fearing men. Matthew 23, verse 5 says this. Everything they do, talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries, which we'll look at that word in a minute. That's a weird word. They make their, their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. And here's basically what he says. They love to have their phylacter, phylacteries. Everybody say phylacteries. That was better than I did. So they have their, phylacter, their phylacteries wide What a phylactery was, what it was it was like a headband with a box on the front of it. And in this box they would keep written verses. So they would have this headband and in these Pharisees, instead of having just these tiny little boxes, they'd have these really wide boxes. I mean, I just have this really awkward image of a dude walking around with a headband and this massively wide phylactery on his face that I guess symbolizes because he's got it on his head, that he's got this scripture in his head, in his heart, whatever. So they got these phylacteries. Show they're spiritual. Then they got these tassels on their garments. Basically, they wore the clothes of, of worshipers. They had the outward appearance of, of worshipers. Then it says they loved the places of honor at banquets. They loved to be recognized. They loved to be seen um, in the important seats in the synagogues. They, they, they loved to be greeted in the marketplaces, and they loved to have men call them rabbi, the ones who knew God's word, who knew the law, who knew the prophets. They loved all that. And so Jesus calls them out on this and says, you guys should all just move to New York City and audition for Broadway because you're all just a bunch of actors. And he says, the costumes that you're wearing uh, are really just covering up and hiding the true you, which is behind the costume, which is being hidden behind that. And the truth about them was this. Verse 6, he says, their hearts are far from me. He says, outwardly, you present yourself as one who's walking closely with God, but if you were to take the costume off, everyone would see that that's not the case at all. Now, at this point, at this point, we've already seen um, we've already seen a little bit how their hearts were far from God, just from the context of the situation. Because you go back to chapter six, you see that Jesus and the disciples they've been traveling around, ministering to people, exhausting themselves, focusing on other people's needs over their own needs. Right? Follow me? And then they okay they accidentally failed to wash their hands before. They eat dinner. That'd be like us forgetting to pray before we eat. That's kind of the comparison there. But then you have the Pharisees. And they, they've been traveling a lot, like the disciples and Jesus, but it was really not for noble purposes. They weren't ministering to people. In fact, they were completely ignoring, as they traveled high class, in comfort, in pleasure, they're completely ignoring the the needy and the hurting people that they passed on the road. But, good thing for them is they did remember to clean their hands, to wash their hands before they ate. If you see in Scripture, Psalm 68, 5, which you can kind of write that down and look at it later, says, Sing to God. Sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord, and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. James one twenty-seven says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And it goes on to say, and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. But the focus there being, look after orphans and widows in their distress. God's heart breaks for the needy and for the hurting people. And that's exactly who these Pharisees and these scribes had totally ignored. And so just from the context, we see that the Pharisees and scribes' hearts were far from God. But specifically here, Christ points out something else. He really goes after, I feel like, kind of throws a one-two punch here, trying to point out how another way their hearts were far from God. Look at verse 8. Mark 7, verse 8. He says this, You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Verse 9, And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Down in verse 13, he says, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like this. In other words, they do this a lot. And then in verse 20, he gets really specific in what he's trying to say here. He says, he went on. It says, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. In other words, he's saying, what is inside a man's heart is what makes him clean or unclean. So he says, what's in a man's heart is what makes him unclean. Verse 21, for from within, from, for from within out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Jesus looks these dudes in the face and says, outwardly you wear the costume of a God-fearing man, but inwardly your heart is totally and completely impure. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17 says this, Writing to God, says, You do not, you God, do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. As they sit down and the Pharisees come after them and ask them these questions, Jesus kind of leans over, looks them in the face, and calls them hypocrites. The Pharisees and the scribes focused. On their outward presentation at the expense of their inward purity. They focused on their outward presentation at the expense of their inward purity. I don't know if y'all have seen this book before. Anybody read this book, Unchristian? Some of you are like, what does this mean? Maybe, kinda, he glimpsed, skimmed it, sped red. I don't even understand the concept of speed reading, but anyways, Unchristian. It's a book put out by the Barner Research Group, written by a guy named David Kinneman, okay? Um, I recommend it. It's an interesting read. But uh, if you haven't heard, anybody heard of the Barner Research Group? Maybe a couple. Okay. Well, Barna Research Group. It's a Christian organization. They do a lot of research, hence the name Research Group. And uh, the research is actually pretty good. I, I don't like some of the way they phrase what they what they research on because I think it's a little bit inaccurate. But their research statistics are really good. Um, anyways, one of the one of the statistics that they that they talk about in here is that. Um, 84% of thousands of people that they interviewed, 84% of these people said that they knew somebody who, who was a committed follower of Christ, 84%. So just random people in the United States. Um, but then uh, they also said that in, in that 84%, they found that only 15% of those people said that uh, as they looked at these, quote-unquote, committed followers of Christ's lives, they really didn't see anything different from the norm. Um, Or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, only in 15% of those people, they they saw something different from the norm. So the majority, they didn't see anything different from the norm. Uh, They go on to say this in here, and I think this is interesting. It says, in virtually every study we conduct representing thousands of interviews every year, born-again Christians fail to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. For instance, based on a study released in 2007, we found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians were statistically equivalent to those of non-born-again When asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, born-again believers were just as likely to bet or gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that didn't belong to them, to consult a medium or psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescription drug, to have said something to someone that wasn't true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. No difference, they say. One study we conducted examined Americans' engagement in some type of sexually inappropriate behavior, including looking at online pornography, viewing sexually explicit magazines or movies, or having an intimate sexual encounter outside of marriage. In all, we found that 30% of born again Christians admitted to at least one of these activities in the past 30 days, compared with 35% of other Americans. So you got your Christians, 30% were doing this. You got your non Christians, 35% were admitting to doing this. In statistical and practical terms, this means the two groups are essentially no different from each other. If these groups of people were in two separate rooms and you were asked to determine, based on their lifestyles alone, which room contained the Christians, you'd be hard-pressed to find much of a difference and, and really to identify which room was which. As I've kind of been thinking through this this week, um, I don't know, just some thoughts that have come to my mind. I feel like we're in a generation here of of. I don't know, we're, in it, we're living in a generation where we've got some of the best, this is my opinion, this is not fact, but, you know, some, some really good, incredible songwriters, Christian songwriters. I mean, I think y'all would agree with that. I know there's a lot of people who would be like, heck no, um, but I, I think we've got some great songwriters, um, maybe some of the best ever, uh, but even further, you know, you can't really deny we live in a generation where we have some incredible uh, communicators of God's word, incredible preachers, um, fact This is a fact. We live in a generation where we have larger churches than we've ever had before. Yet I would go on to at least make an observation that um, now, possibly more than ever, we see moral failure happening in the lives of those great songwriters, great authors, great preachers. And and then you look at our, our massively huge church congregations, and you see possibly more than ever impurity plaguing uh, those people plaguing those con- congregations. I mean, when you look at the facts and you look at the statistics and you look at the research, I think it becomes pretty obvious that our generation of Christianity looks frighteningly similar to what these Pharisees and these scribes that Jesus and the disciples run into look like. I would say there's a f- there's a frightening similarity there. We tend to focus. We tend to focus on on our outward presentation. At the expense of our inward purity. So then you have to ask the question: Is God glorified in this? You think of, think about it like this: Is is God, is God glorified in in beautiful buildings, in elaborate staging, in crisply organized music, and and great bands leading and Preaching podcasts becoming more and more popular, all the all the while while his people are drowning in a sea of immorality. Is he glorified in that? Is, is he glorified with? I mean, at least what seems like um, us having more and more Christian authors with New York Times best selling books on the market. And uh, is he glorified in the fact that I mean, there's we're living in this kind of trend here with with Constantly, there's a new, really awesome, incredible worship album being released. Yet, in the midst of more New York Times best selling books, Christian books out on the market, and more of these incredible worship albums being thrown out there, you've uh, got more and more people who are being plagued with moral failure who would identify themselves as born again Christians, as believers, as church people. Is he glorified in that? Are our worship events glorifying to God or even meaningful at all? If we come here every week and we're here religiously every week and more and more people come every week and the band's great and we're, we're singing out loud, we're lifting our hands, we're taking notes. Don't stop taking notes. I'm not saying that. I'm just, you know, we're taking notes during the sermon or whatever, yet we, we neglect and ignore the hidden issues of our hearts. Is God glorified in that? Is that kind of worship glorifying to God? I think it's a legitimate question to ask. And he answers the question in verse 7. After he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He says, they worship me in vain. He answers the question right there by saying, no, it's not glorifying to him at all. And this word vain, he says, they worship me in vain. This word vain, it basically means worthless or meaningless, or I like the word fruitless. We've got to see like a huge truth here. And the huge truth is there is a such thing as worthless worship. And I think according to this passage, Christ would define worthless worship as worship that the focus is on outward presentation at the expense of inward purity. God is much, much less concerned with the size of our worship gathering and much more concerned with the sanctification of our hearts. He's much less concerned with the presentation of our worship and much more concerned with the purification of our hearts. And not only is this worship vain, meaning worthless or meaningless and not glorifying to God, but it's vain, meaning fruitless or powerless. I kind of talked about this last week. Um, these guys from New Orleans, uh, this halfway house, Bethel Colony South, and I kind of described to y'all the worship setting that I experienced down there. And I believe that that real worship is is powerful and produces fruit. And I saw that when I was there. I mean, here we are worshiping these these seventy dudes off the street whose lives had really been transformed by Christ, inward transformation. And there's this one guy, it was his first time to be there worshiping. And you could see, like, as that hour-long time of worship was going, the transformation began, even in that few minutes, began to take place in this guy's life. And I, I think it's safe to say that he was probably on his way to really being transformed by the Lord because you look at the other 70 dudes who were in there who came from the same shoes he came from, and they had been transformed by God. Worship, real worship produces fruit. It has power to transform. But this kind of worship is vain. It, it, it's fruitless. I mean, is it possible that we've put our focus totally and completely on the wrong thing? Outward presentation over inward purity. I mean, if so, then we've been sold, and I would say that we're selling to others a cheap knockoff version of Christianity. We've been ripped off, and we're ripping other people off. We've been fooled by, and we are fooling others with this heartless religion. I love the song. Uh, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. I'm not going to sing it, but the heart of worship. You know, coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. That's the heart of worship. The heart of worship is it's all about you, Jesus. But where is the heart in worship? What does your and my heart look like when we come to worship? I think it's a very legitimate question that we have to ask ourselves knowing that there is such thing as vain, worthless, fruitless worship defined by focusing on outward presentation at the expense of inward purity. And that was the issue that these Pharisees and these scribes were dealing with when Jesus kind of drops this A-bomb on them And it's very possibly, I think, an issue that we deal with in here, right now, tonight. A.W. Tozer, that guy I mentioned earlier, he says this, said this, he's dead. But he said, uh, he said, Christian churches have come to the dangerous time predicted long ago. It's a time when we can put one another on the back, or I'm sorry, it's a time when we can pat one another on the back, congratulate ourselves, and join in the glad refrain, we are rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And he goes on to say, it certainly is true that hardly anything is missing from our churches these days except the most important thing. He says we're missing the genuine and sacred offering of ourselves and our worship to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I told you, uh, Jesus' response, he, he quotes Isaiah 29. 700 years ago, this prophecy in Isaiah was made, and he quotes it intentionally, knowing that Pharisees, the scribes, would know what he was talking about, word for word, maybe even better than Jesus, I don't know. And they knew the context in which the words that he said, their lips honor me, or they honor me with the lips, but their hearts are far from me. They knew the context in which that fell. And, and so I want you to listen to what God says he's going to do, uh, what he's going to do because, or to these Israelites from Isaiah. I want you to listen to what, he, what God says he's going to do because Because the Israelites, seven hundred years earlier, were struggling with this same kind of worthless worship, that focused on outward presentation at the expense of inward purity. Isaiah twenty-nine verse one, says this: God says, "Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled! Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on." Now, just as a side note, I think it's interesting how he refers to Jerusalem here. I think it's kind of cool. We know he's talking about Jerusalem because he says it's the city where David settled. That's Jerusalem, but he he doesn't call it Jerusalem. He calls it Ariel Ariel, and it's not the chick from The Mermaid or whatever that stupid show was. Um, Little Mermaid, sorry. Sorry, ladies. Sorry, it's not a stupid show. It's a great show. It's awesome. So he's not referring to Ariel from The Little Mermaid. This word Ariel uh, most likely is translated as Lion of God. So you've got Jerusalem, and he's calling it Lion of God, Lion of God. Woe to you, Lion of God. This was like the, the center of the nation of Israel. This was the focal point of, of God's, God's people. This is where the temple was. This is where God dwelled among the people in the temple, in Jerusalem, in this nation, God's nation, God's people of Israel. And this was like the epicenter of really the power of the nation of Israel because that's where God was. So he calls him the Lion of God. But then in verse 1 he says, add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. So because Jerusalem was where the temple was, this is where the religious festivals took place. It was the religious epicenter of the nation of Israel. And so the religion of the entire nation was really shaped by the religion that happened or the type of religion that took place in in Jerusalem. And this city was really defined by religious activity because that's where the temple was. Yet. Because of their worthless worship, which he describes later in verse 13, which is the same thing that Jesus says in Mark 7, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Because of their worthless worship, God goes on to say this in verse 2 of Isaiah 29. He says, yet I will besiege Israel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you all around. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Listen to this verse four. He says, brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. That sounds like really destructive and intense to me. It sounds really harsh. It sounds like God is completely fed up and about to drop a nuclear missile on the city of Jerusalem. But before we assume that and jump to that conclusion, let me show you what I think he's really saying here. Let me read to you a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 5, 9 says, You shall not bow down to them or worship them. 1 Kings one forty seven says, And the king bowed in worship on his bed and said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. Job 1, 20 said, At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship, Psalm ninety-five six says, "Come, let us bow down in worship; let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God." Psalm ninety-nine five says, "Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool; He is holy." Daniel three ten says, "You have issued a decree, O King, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, must fall down and worship the image of gold." 1 Corinthians 14 says, But if any unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Revelation 19.10 says, At this I fell at his feet to worship him. Revelation two eight says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship I don't know if you saw a trend in there. But over two-thirds of the time that this word worship is translated in Scripture, it means face to the dust or forehead to the dirt or to the ground. It means to fall prostrate. It uh, It means to adore on one's knees. It means to fall down. The overwhelming majority of cases in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament where this word worship is, it means to bow down. So in Isaiah 29, when God says, I will encamp against you all around, I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the where? From the ground. You will speech, your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth, and out of the dust your speech will whisper. God isn't saying I'm going to destroy and totally dominate these people. He's saying I'm going to teach these people how to worship. And there's two ways he's going to do this. One, he'll expose who they are at the core. He's going to expose their weakness. He's going to expose their sin, their inward purity. kind of like this video of Dwight. Michael found out that he'd been meeting behind his back with Jan, and so, you know, he's exposed, and what does he do? He drops to the ground and falls face to the carpet, not to the dust, I guess. Maybe it was dusty. He's going to bring them to a lowly place of transparency where they and all others see who they really are, to where they have a realistic perspective of who they are. 1 Corinthians 14.25 says, And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God. The second way he's going to do this is he says, back in Isaiah 29.14, God says, Once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Fast forward to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 19. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and then Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence, I will frustrate. The first part of God teaching these people to worship is to expose their sin, to expose their impurity, to bring them to a lowly place of transparency where they have a realistic view of who they are. And the second part of teaching them to worship is to astound them by revealing himself to the people. And it says that he was going to do it by doing something so awesome it just seems stupid. <laughs> the foolish of the wise, or the, the wisdom of the wise, he'll, he'll make it, I mean, he'll just make it look Stupid. And we'd see that that revelation would come through Christ. Quoting Tozer again, he says, Jesus was born of aversion, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on the cross and rose from the grave to make worshipers out of rebels. He's done it all through grace and we're the recipients. I fear that our concept of worship has been has been mostly shaped by this outward perspective, by this outward, this idea of outward presentation. And when I say that, I'm not just saying like what the stage looks like, the presentation of the stage, the elaborate staging, or I'm not just saying, uh, I don't know, in a worship experience like this, the band being great, or whatever, the aesthetics of this place in here. I don't know, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about even the outward presentation of ourselves. I think that our concept of worship has been so much shaped by this idea of outward presentation. So uh, just some examples that come to my mind are, so we update our Twitter, our Facebook status with some old dude's quote that sounds really cool and spiritual, you know? It makes us look spiritual, like we just had a quiet time that was really good. So we write that verse in Twitter or Facebook, update our status so everybody can see. Or, I don't know, we, we're just involved in everything that has everything to do with church. We're here at all the worship gatherings, which is good. None of this stuff is necessarily bad, but it's all outward it's all outward presentation. I don't know. you can probably think of ways in which we present ourselves outwardly. <clears throat> but because because this is what's shaped our concept of worship, this idea of outward presentation, I'm afraid that we've horribly failed in learning to examine our hearts, and so we, just like the Pharisees and the scribes that we see in Mark 7, have become masters of our of our outward presentation, but huge failures when it comes to inward purity. And so as we're, man, as we're looking at this word worship and redefining this word worship, my prayer tonight is understanding the effect that our inward purity can have on our worship My prayer is that God would teach us more of what it looks like to really worship and be worshipers. Let me pray for us. God, I I pray that tonight your word doesn't go out void and come back void and I know your word promises that it won't so thank you for that dumb prayer I realize but God, I I pray that tonight, um, I just pray that you convict our hearts of this, pray that uh, you convict my heart and everybody's heart in here of just, not really about outward presentation at all, it's about what's on the inside, and I know that, um, I know we're not just statistics, but if, if we fit the statistics, then most of us in here are struggling probably with some impurity in our hearts, and I just pray that you would um, bring us to a place of of transparency with ourselves and even with others, and most importantly with you in that, and uh, I pray that as you expose those weaknesses and those impurities and those sins, I pray that you'd also um, open our eyes to see what you've done through Christ and the way you've revealed yourself to us through Christ. Uh, astounding the people that you talk about in Isaiah. Well, Thank you for your son, Jesus, and uh, just the love and the grace. You say wonder upon wonder, and I, I feel like that's referring to not only the grace that comes through forgiveness, but the grace that comes through your Holy Spirit that you give to us to help us overcome these impurities. So I thank you for that, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to not neglect the examination of our hearts. And I pray that you would transform us into true worshipers of you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.